0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the Global University, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. At the beginning of a new year, it's traditional to reflect and assess. We'll do that this week, covering what looks to be the key issues facing Latin America in 2016. But first, Natalie Adiger is here with our weekly
1: review of news from around
0: Latin America.
1: The Mexican government moved this week to send the man who calls himself the world's most powerful drug dealer to the United States for prosecution. This move comes after the dramatic recapture of drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Shorty Guzman last Friday by Mexican marines. Some critics of the Mexican government have expressed doubts that the Mexican government can hold the powerful cartel leader, someone who has escaped twice from Mexican prisons. US government officials with both the Department of Justice and the State Department are working with Mexican authorities on a legal transfer of Guzman to face a variety of charges in the United States State Department spokesman John Kirby addressed the issue this week
2: the world is watching um, uh, how this case is how this case moves forward and uh, um, and that this individual needs to stay behind bars.
1: Officials say it could take more than a year to work out the legal details to transfer El Chapo. Mexican officials say they were able to find the drug lord's hangout because of his involvement with actors Sean Penn and Kate Del Castillo. Penn met with Guzman as a part of an assignment to publish the exclusive interview for Rolling Stone magazine. The cartel leader also met with Del Castillo multiple times trying to put together a film deal about his life. Relief may be in sight for some Cuban refugees attempting a journey from Ecuador to the United States. About 8,000 refugees have been stranded at the border between Costa Rica and Nicaragua for the past two months. The refugees want to head to the U.S. where current immigration laws will immediately allow their entrance because they are seen as defectors from a communist state if they come to the U.S. via a land route. However, Nicaragua closed its borders to the Cubans. Nicaragua is a close ally of Cuba. The Costa Rican government worked out a deal this week that would give the Cubans plane tickets to El Salvador and bus transportation to Mexico. However, Costa Rica has now closed its borders to new groups of Cuban refugees, and another group of 3,000 Cubans is stranded in Panama. It's a case of Missile Missile, who's got the missile? In this case, it's a U.S. Hellfire missile, and somehow it ended up in the hands of the Cuban government. Lockheed Martin shipped the missile to Spain two years ago for a NATO training exercise, but on its return flight through Paris, it was accidentally routed to a flight to Havana, and the Cubans have had it ever since. News of the missile came to light this week after Marco Rubio sent a letter to the State Department calling the incident an embarrassment. Rubio is both a U.S. Senator and a presidential candidate. US forces have used the missile since the 1970s. It is laser guided, found on drones, planes, and helicopters. US officials say the missile did not have key components and poses no threat, but critics like Rubio say having the missile means the Cubans can share the technology with their allies, which include North Korea and China. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Audinger.
0: Thanks Natalie. Since its inception, this online radio program has had a close relationship with the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. So, when it was time to assess the key issues for Latin America for this year, we knew where to turn. This week, we feature an extended interview with the Center's director, Eric Hirschberg, conducted via Skype.
2: Well, I think that the key issues um, can be seen if we look at what's gone on over the past year. Um, and I think I, I mentioned three in particular. Um, the first is that um, it's become clear that the period of rapid growth, that uh, economic growth, that Latin much of Latin America experienced beginning around 2003, a decade of uh, higher growth rates than we had seen for um, at least 40 years. Um, that uh, that period is now over, and we're entering. A phase of much slower growth and, in some instances, even economic contraction. Uh, and this is inextricably linked to the um, slowing growth rates in China, um, the collapse in oil and other commodity prices. Um, and in that context, Latin American governments that had been able to make substantial inroads in reducing high inequality rates, uh, substantial inroads in addressing uh, persistent poverty. Uh, and investments in um, infrastructure that held the potential for sustaining growth over time, uh, those governments now find themselves in very um, dire fiscal straits. Uh, this is particularly clear in Brazil, Argentina, Ecuador, um, not to mention Venezuela, where um, a monumentally incompetent government um, has really um, destroyed both economic and political institutions. Um, and so, one question looking forward is how during 2016 and beyond will Latin America adjust to a period of significantly slower economic growth and what is that going to mean for the capacity of states to address accumulated social uh, demands so that's the first question I think a second question um, is that in that context um, whereas for quite a while Um, the tendency has been for Latin American governments to be re-elected, either the same presidents or presidents of the same party as the incumbent. Uh, I think it's very possible that we'll begin to see a period now where incumbents uh, face a much more difficult road. Um, We've just seen um, elections in both Venezuela and Argentina um, in which um, incumbents have been um, um, sharply rebuked by the electorate. Um, if you look at popularity ratings of Brazilian President Rousseff or even Chilean President Bachelet um, you see that um, there, is, there is a good deal of discontent among the electorates and so I think the question of whether we're in for a period of rotation in power um, in a number of political systems in the region um, is going to be very much on the agenda um, during the coming year and beyond and finally, uh, related to these two things, I think um, one interesting development that we saw over the past year was the intensification of popular mobilizations against um, um, government corruption and against impunity of elected officials um, and and appointed officials, public officials in general, um, um, in the face of malfeasance of various sorts. Uh, and so we saw in. Um, The middle of the year, late August, early September, um, demonstrations in Guatemala that ultimately brought down the president, who's now in jail. Um, We've seen um, continued intermittent demonstrations in Brazil where the corruption scandals um, continue to to mushroom, um, proliferate. Um, And I think that uh, we may well see this in other countries where Um, there is a degree of voter fatigue um, with political elites whose transgressions might have been better tolerated during periods of um, economic bonanza. Um, And of course at the same time while this is a a backlash um, um, in the context of broader dissatisfaction, it's important to note as well that it also signals um, improvements in the capabilities of judicial institutions in these countries um, there's still a long way to go um, but I think that the um, events of the past couple of years have shown that um, judicial institutions um, and, and prosecutorial institutions uh, are taking on cases that they would not have years ago and I think this is a sign uh, a positive sign in terms of the potential for Latin American democracies to um, um, embark on a, on a period of uh, strengthening this critical element of governance that uh, historically um, has um, not ensured accountability to the extent that one might like.
0: Let me follow up and, and speak specifically to the case in Brazil, which as you mentioned um, fits all three of those particular questions. And so lots of questions going on ab- about Brazil in, in that we do see strong prosecutors. We do see all the way to the Supreme Court weighing in on the impeachment process there. Um, what are your thoughts specifically about Brazil and how it comes through 2016?
2: Well, Brazil will have a significant contraction in the gross domestic product uh, over the course of 2016. Um, it's going to have a fiscal deficit um, significantly above the target set by the finance ministry and the central bank. Um, unemployment um, has increased from roughly seven to ten percent. It will continue to increase. Um, in that context, it is almost inevitable that poverty will increase. It is probable that inequality will increase, and inflation will continue to exceed targets as well. Um, so, Brazil is in for um, at least another year of very difficult economic times. Um, in the event that commodity prices were to um, increase beyond current projections, that might be attenuated a bit. Um, but uh, I think by all accounts um, Brazil uh, still has a fairly difficult road ahead Um, it's significant that the uh, finance minister Joaquin Levy who President Rousseff had installed uh, somewhat over the objections of her own party the workers party um, did not last long in the position and resigned um, having been unable to get some of the budget cuts that he favored um, through the legislature Um, and so it's going to be a very difficult period of economic governance now at the same time as you mentioned Rick there's the discussion of impeachment both of the president um, but not only of the president of of, um, congressional representatives as well Um, my sense is though this is still a rapidly evolving situation my sense is that various actors have incentives not to go down this road Um, in my sense as well is that the grounds for impeaching Rousseff are tenuous at best but it is the case that she is languishing with around 10 percent approval rates Um, she has a a hostile Congress, um, a very fractured Congress um, and it would be foolish to venture any firm predictions as to what's going to go on um, in, in, in the political leadership um, I think further, we're going to see continued revelations about the various corruption scandals that are, that are uh, filling the news and that are, that are occupying um, public debate. Um, these are going to unfold over a protracted period of time. Um, this will um, fuel further um, um, discontent, um, further political disillusion. Um, so difficult times. Um, having said that, Many of Brazil's political institutions um, are much stronger today than they were, say, um, the last time there was an an impeachment effort back in the mid-1980s with President Color. de Mello. Um, And um, there are also, in um, one of the the products of the past um, couple of decades of, I think, overall, one would say, um, competent rule, under both the Carlos administration and um, Rousseff's predecessor, uh, Lula. Uh, I think one of the consequences of that is that a variety of political institutions, um, particularly in the judiciary but also various forms of institutions that provide for public participation in decision-making are much stronger than they were in the past and provide the basis um, for Brazil to move ahead later in this decade And resume the upward trajectory that had so many people confident about its future um, just a couple of three years ago.
0: We'll have more from our wide-ranging interview with Eric Hirschberg coming up. Stay with us.
1: Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn.
0: Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now we resume our in-depth discussion of key issues in Latin America with Eric Hirschberg of American University, recorded via Skype from Washington, D.C.
2: First, I'm not as convinced that what we're seeing in the region right now is a move away from the left. That's um, an interpretation, a narrative that I've seen widely um, circulated in the English language um, press and and, um, blogs and so forth. It seems to me that the way I would look at this is more of an anti-incumbent wave. Now, to the extent that so many of the incumbents... Um, were on the left side of the political spectrum, yes it does have some um, character of a move away from the left. However I think that just as the left turn or the left turns plural because there were very many different kinds of leftist governments in the region, just as that I think was in some respects um, inflated, that is to say that if you look at polling data the electorates had not moved radically further left in terms of policy preferences Um, they had moved modestly further left perhaps but the main thing is they were rewarding um, good performance they were rewarding economic growth, diminished unemployment um, better social programs um, and governments that provided those kept getting re-elected now that economic growth is slowing it's not a surprise that some of those groups are being, uh, some of those um, governments are being voted out of office Um, but I don't think that there's been a substantial move away from um, policy preferences that have prevailed in the region over the last decade or so. Um, and this is going to be one of the big challenges for um, someone like um, Mauricio Macri, um, the center-right candidate who is now occupying the presidency in Argentina, because um, you know the, the public opinion polling says that the electorate remains comparatively statist rather than market-oriented, um, very committed to. Um, the kinds of employment promotion um, and frankly protectionist policies that the Kirchner administration had practiced Um, and we'll have to see how uh, the new government navigates that that difficult landscape. Similarly, um, it's very clear that um, the overwhelming majority of Venezuelans understand that the current government um, is toxic um, but it's not clear that there is a majority around some kind of an alternative Um, either in terms of an alternative um, political coalition or an alternative set of policies that such an eventual coalition might pursue so it seems to me that it's not clear that we have a shift away from the left as much as we have a shift away from incumbents now there are countries you mentioned Bolivia I would mention uh, Uruguay uh, as another where um, governments have continued to deliver the goods um, perhaps not to the extent that they had previously, um, but where they're still seen as governing relatively effectively. And again, where governance is seen as functioning well, um, political leaders have a better opportunity to, um, to, to enjoy continued support. Um, and I think, you know, good governance gets rewarded.
0: Speaking of good governments getting rewarded, uh, let's speak a little bit about Venezuela since you mentioned them. Uh, some people describe the situation there post-elections with a new Congress coming in a- as as a powder keg, as the potential for, for violence and, and and for a further political crackdown from the president. And I wonder um, what you see there, or is that, uh, are those predictions uh, too much?
2: Well, that's certainly one scenario, Um I think it's 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 um, premature to make firm predictions. Um, I think there's an enormous amount of uncertainty. Um, it's not clear to me that the government has the will, but also, I mean, in fact, I'm quite clear they don't have the will. But even if they develop the will to engage in some kind of collaborative process um, in the Congress um, and to make possible compromises around. Um, economic policies, compromises around um, the autonomy of political institutions, and so on. Even if they have, if they develop the inclination to do so, it's not clear to me that they have the capability to do it. Um, there are clearly sharp divisions within Chavismo itself, um, and um, any leader who tries to pursue a conciliatory strategy may well face um, attacks. Um, from other parts of the party apparatus um, so you know I think that's one big unknown and in turn the opposition um, has never shown itself to be um, responsible um, never shown itself frankly to be fully committed to democratic politics either um, and obviously they're going to seek a more um, you know compromising stance at this point because they they in order to get anything done they need to, um, work with the executive. Uh, but at the same time, um, and I think understandably there's going to be very strong sentiment in the opposition um, toward trying to move on a path to where there can be a popular referendum um, on the on ousting um, um, president um, the president from office. And it seems to me that during the coming months um, or or sooner, it will be important for the opposition to determine whether there is indeed going to be any space at all for reaching some degree of co-governance with the mother administration and if there's not I think that they would actually be wise to focus all of their attention on um, winning a referendum as they just won an election which can be held three years into the six-year term of the president um, and having that provide an occasion Um, to move beyond this really um, devastatingly bad government um, that has caused so much damage in Venezuela.
0: Let me bring up something that you haven't mentioned, and that is uh, President Obama in the United States. Um, Arguably, President Obama, um, with his opening to Cuba and his outreach to Latin America in 2015, certainly um, put his presidency on the map as being one of the most significant presidencies in the U.S. toward Latin America in many decades. I wonder um, if we see President Obama doing more in Latin America in 2016. He's pledged that he will continue to be a strong president and not a lame duck in his last year. um, Or do you think that that is also hoping for too much? You know, he's going to have a
2: busy year. And yes, it's very clear that he doesn't intend to spend the last year of his presidency, just as he didn't spend the penultimate year of his presidency operating as a lame duck. Um, having said that, there there are a limited number of days to the year, and how much of those he can focus on Latin America, um, you know, it, it, very questionable. He's got bigger things on his plate. Um, having said that, I think that there are things that the administration um, can do and is inclined to do uh, that would be very productive for relations with um, Latin America. One of them um, specifically has to do with the opening to Cuba. That it's important that the administration accelerate progress toward um, strengthened, um, more normal, shall we say, r- diplomatic relations with Cuba. And also beyond diplomatic relations, that they continue to create an environment in which ties between the two countries can expand at an ever more um, rapid pace. And to do that, there are quite a number of Um, executive actions that can be taken by the White House. And I'm hoping that we will soon see some announcements of measures that both the Treasury and Commerce Department could take to further facilitate travel and to further facilitate economic activities linking um, firms um, and individuals um, in the two countries. They've they've gone a fairly long way, but there's there's considerably more that they can do. Um, And I think that they're aware of that. Um, so I think that that is a very important um, element of continuing the momentum um, that certainly has boosted Obama's standing in the region. I think that it would be wise for the administration to double down on some of the, um, I think, more innovative ideas that have been bandied about occasionally with regard to how the U.S. and Latin America can work together very productively. For example, the Caribbean um, is benefiting from the moment from lower oil prices. However, they are at the same time very vulnerable to a re- renewed spike in oil prices because they no longer have um, the same access to subsidized energy from Venezuela. Um, Vice President ba- Biden announced a Caribbean Basin Energy Initiative. Um, I think that the administration should really. Um, Pay, pay give, give emphasis to that. Um, it's the kind of partnership that makes sense for both parties rather than a partnership that reflects a U.S. agenda that then gets
0: exported to the region. What haven't we covered that you think we should consider? You know,
2: I think a very important um, relationship that we haven't talked about is with Mexico. I think that the administration uh, sees Mexico as an important partner in at least... Um, two critical respects um, that bear mentioning. Um, one of them is around the issue of migration. And of course, Mexican migration has pretty much stopped uh, to migration to the United States. Um, but Mexico is the transit point for migrants coming from the Central American Isthmus. And um, I think that at the core of American policy toward Mexico during this period will be seeking Mexican assistance. To block as many people as possible from reaching the United States, I think that's unfortunate. Um, I think that it violates um, important international human- humanitarian norms. But I think that given the politics in the United States, um, this is something that the administration is going to push the Mexicans on very hard. Um, and as 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 um, um, accompanying that, it's going to be less inclined than it might otherwise be to push the Mexican government about some of its own. Um, shortcomings in terms of um, human rights abuses and the like. So I think that's an unfortunate aspect of the bilateral relationship with Mexico. On the economic front, um, the United States and the Obama administration in particular, I think is really is committed to trying to make the Trans-Pacific uh, par- um, a Partnership a reality, and obviously that's going to require some very heavy and perhaps impossible lifting in the U.S. Congress. Um, but it's a it's an area where the U.S. and the Mexican governments have um, coinciding interests. And again, what, regardless of what one thinks of that particular package, I think that it's going to be high on the agenda of both governments um, as they want to see it. Um, come about and I think that among the Latin American signatories to that uh, trade pact Mexico is actually the one that stands most to benefit because it is a manufacturing economy to a much greater degree than the other uh, participating Latin American countries and the prospect of becoming integrated into uh, manufacturing um, systems that are um, trans-Pacific manufacturing systems um, is is as attractive to Mexico, um, given its overall favorable um, evaluation of the ways in which NAFTA enabled it to become incorporated very centrally into North American industrial networks, um, and I think that in that sense that trade pact is of particular interest to Mexico. Um, I think beyond that, um, the United States. In this context of um, the rotating out of office of a number of governments that were more statist and protectionist in orientation, more skeptical of of the market, and more skeptical of American leadership in both regional and global affairs, I think that in that context, the United States government is going to be very attentive to whether there are ways in which they can bring Latin American governments into line with positions that um, the United States government favors. Um, And I think that you'll therefore see um, renewed attention um, to a number of countries where the United States under Obama had essentially agreed to disagree and turned its attention elsewhere.
0: Thanks so much. Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Join us via Skype from Washington, D.C., on Latin Pulse today. Thanks for being our guest. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for joining us for our program looking at key policy issues in Latin America. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Hente Flow. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin dash Pulse. That's www.linktv.org, slash Latin dash Pulse. Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Natalie Oninger and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. nos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the Global University, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.